You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me John Sanchez. John, you are a Harvard student on a gap year. You created the Carbon Removal Academy with air miners. You built up their boot up program, which some Nori knots have been going through. You also do a thing called problem packs. You're all over the place. This is a busy gap year for you. Couldn't you have just gone to Machu Picchu or something? No, uh, a lot of this is based on the fact that we're in quarantine mode. So that's a lot of the genesis of these programs is because I was locked down and looking for stuff to do. Really? Well, yeah. How did you get into the the climate world and, and how did this all happen? Yeah, it's kind of a cool and funny story. Before the pandemic, I guess, in my first year of college, I came in as a computer science guy, picked up an interest in chemistry along the way interested in entrepreneurship, but feeling a little bit directionless. But as my virtual spring semester, once the COVID pandemic hit, finished off about a year ago now, uh, I was trying to come up with interesting ways to spend a quarantine, socially distant summer, you know, something to work on, whatever. But I came up with 50 topics that sounded cool to me, things that I wanted to explore further from, you know, coding projects to literature and reading to trying out stand-up comedy, just a whole grab bag of things and put them all on scraps of paper in a jar. And literally each week of this crazy system I set up for myself, just pick something out of the jar and tried to do it that week. And week two for me was explore the climate tech startup ecosystem, which I literally knew basically nothing about. And yeah, that week I listened to a lot of podcasts, including this one, did a lot of reading, was intrigued and very slowly fell down the rabbit hole. Eventually, I ran into air miners and the carbon removal world. And that sucked me in further as I sort of became a member of the community and made a bunch of friends there. And I guess at some point I stopped the cycle because I realized I was onto something with climate and wanted to keep building stuff there. Is there an alternate reality where you're doing stand up right now? There are so many alternate reactions. I think about that all the time where like every Monday morning, I'd like pick something out of the jar and then put it back without looking at it and pick something else. And that would be what I opened. But like the very specific sequence of things that came out of that process is very likely to define my next (laughs) year's life. I don't know. It's just kind of fun to think about. It's a beautiful and terrifying thing. And I think it multiplies as you get older to think about how much contingency exists within your life and how many random things have shaped its outcomes. Yeah, what if you had picked a different thing? What if you had gotten into <laughs> uh, like artificial intelligence? That one came up first. And you're like, oh, the world exactly. would be different. Carbon removal would be different, John. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. hope I'm uh, doing things that make an impact. But yeah, AI was in there. So it could have happened. <laughs> Did you end up doing an open mic or anything? No, I didn't. <laughs> but one day, maybe when I go back to campus, I'll be part of their stand-up comedy club. You should do it. It sort of like has a Tim Ferriss vibe to it. Where you're like, <laughs> there's like a little bit of a dilettante approach, but you also are really good in... I almost feel like you're going to put me out of a job sometimes because you're also really into literature and the creative stuff. If you knew that and you're better at the technical stuff than me, John, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> You're going to take, take food out of my family's mouth. Well, how could you do that? <laughs> no, reversing climate change is a unique experience. The people come here for a reason. 
Hmm. Was diplomacy also on one of those little things? <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things I could have picked up. Nice. Okay. That's good. <laughs> well, um, we should probably define all of these different programs. I don't even know. How do you, how do you describe them overall? Experiences, learning experiences? There's, there's a bit of a MOOC kind of quality to them. Yeah, sure. Well, for me, a lot of what I've done during the past year sort of revolves around the question about like, you know, what it takes to actually transition into the climate world from the ground up right now. And there are a bunch of people working on this. But to me, the way I see it is like, you know, if someone's beginning with like a vague interest, maybe in climate broadly, or maybe with an inkling about a particular space like CDR, uh, and then the end space is now I have a job in climate, I'm starting a company, whatever that goal is. And for a lot of people, I don't think it's as easy as immediately going to reply to a bunch of seemingly relevant job postings to your skill set. Like, I think there's a real exploration process required to find your specific affinity, your specific interest, gather knowledge, and then ultimately choose something right. And even within the CDR space, that exploration process is real because the CDR space is interesting in that it's like a cool grab bag of a lot of seemingly unrelated areas that ultimately come together to all remove carbon from the atmosphere. But the two projects and initiatives that I've got going are sort of related to the different ways that that exploration might look and are also sort of community focused and community based learning and community based exploration. And we've been interested in the topic of climate communities, and we'll get into your thinking on how you've been building these out. But the first one, I think you started, you came out of nowhere. One day I just woke up and there was a thing called Carbon Removal Academy that existed. <laughs> and I was like, oh, who is this? What is this? So what exactly is Carbon Removal Academy? Is it still active or has it been supplanted by these other efforts? Carbon Removal Academy is active. Uh, I just recently revamped the whole curriculum cool. with you know, the latest news and the latest policy coming out with the Biden administration startups that have, weren't around when I first created it. But essentially, it's a curated list of resources that take you through carbon removal sort of from the ground up, starting with, you know, what is this field? What scale do we need? And what is it going to require? And then, you know, module by module, it presents sort of a linear sequence of accessible resources that, you know, somebody who doesn't have a science background and doesn't want to go through the 500 page PDF National Academy of Science report or something that requires a lot of willpower, but rather, you know, just trying to ease people in, get them hooked uh, with content that's already out there and be that source of exploration where you can go through the modules, explore the different spaces and go as deep into that linear sequence of resources as people want. If someone's listening and they wanted to go through it, is this something that they join as a member of a cohort or is it something that they do on their own? How does it work? Well, the cohort is where Air Miners Boot Up comes in. The Air Miners Boot Up is a learning program to sort of get introduced to the CDR space very rapidly. It's a four-week program that goes through a lot of content, but the goal is there to you know, help people understand the basics of each approach and technology to learn the common vocabulary that everyone in the space seems to have, like what the hell additionality means or something, uh, who the major players are, the companies, and all the while sort of making a close group of friends in the climate space in the process. And what the people do in there is go through the Carbon Removal Academy curriculum, uh, sort of module by module. Hmm. So we're recording this in early to mid-April. Uh, how many cohorts have gone through boot up so far? There's been two. We did one in March and we're just starting the April one. The Slack has about 200 people in it right now, but it's not like one mass you know, learning experience where everybody's joining some giant Zoom call or something. The way we have it operating is 
it's subdivided into eight to 10 person discussion groups that each meet twice a week for a small, more intimate Zoom call discussion. And, uh, you know, each of those smaller calls is scheduled to discuss a new CDR topic and has pre-assigned resources for it. Having people be intellectually stimulated and engaged in important thinking is itself valuable. I don't mean to diminish that, but has, uh, has there been anything of, of consequence beyond that that you've noticed or any outcomes that you've been seeing? Yeah, I mean, the goal of the boot up is really just that people find what they want their next step to be. So like, you know, I am a person who's interested in CDR. And after going through this giant experience, now I have an idea that I actually really like the biochar space. And I'm a true believer now. And I want to go do a problem pack on it or go explore the companies in the space or pursue it further somehow. So I really like this idea of affinity to a particular topic that people seem to be developing throughout the program. And, you know, I think that idea of these smaller communities that are built into the larger world are really valuable because a lot of them, as we were shutting down the private Slack groups for each of the the mini, the mini discussion groups for the first cohort, they were desperate to find other ways to stay in touch. And it, it seemed like people really made connections. So for me, that's goal achieved with the boot up. Have there been any startups that have gotten founded out of it yet? Or are you still waiting desperately for your first one? <laughs> Not for the boot up. We're getting there with the problem pack world, which we can talk about. But again, I think the boot up is more a learning experience where the problem packs are like, well, actually, let's get a team together to come work on a problem that could ultimately spin out to be something like that. I love that. They always catch my eye too whenever you post about them. I'm like, dang it, I already work in carbon removal. and I have enough problems in front of me. <laughs> at a normal job. So I'm not looking for extra right now, but they always catch my eye and they're always very thoughtful. Yeah. What exactly is a problem pack and maybe what are some examples of them? Sure. Yeah. So the problem pack sort of spun out of after I had done the first big discussion group with Carbon Removal Academy, I sort of learned from the people who were going through it that lots of people feel like they know how to learn about climate change and build up the knowledge that you'd sort of get coming out of the boot up, but maybe they haven't managed or figured out quite how they want to turn that learning into more concrete action that might stand a chance to remove CO2 from the atmosphere or do something positive for the climate. Uh, so what the problem packs are, are sort of rather than taking like a learning and producing a bunch of content to consume based approach, the problem packs are a different way of exploring by being three weeks sort of fun, intensive climate sprints. Most of them are focused on CDR right now, but you deep dive with a team of five to six people into a single tangible climate problem. And at the end of the three weeks, you're held accountable to produce a solutions oriented deliverable, whether that's a business model or a report or some new tactic to influence the industry, maybe uh, by the end that you present publicly. I saw one about uh, handheld spectrometry and <laughs> carbon. I've seen some about carbon markets. Give me, give me an example of, of one in particular here. Yeah, sure. So one that I think was a lot of fun that okay, this is right now we're in the second round of problem packs as well. In April, I ran the first full round in February. And for the February round, there were four problem packs going and I was actively involved in leading all of the four. So it was quite, it was quite a month, but uh, it, one of the packs in that first round was having the goal of figuring out whether it made sense to install a pyrolyzer at sawmills to produce biochar from the sawmill waste. Mm. And so that was an interesting topic. Sawmills are kind of like, 
you know, just one possible source of biomass that could produce the biochar. But the way that that group proceeded was we literally ended up calling like a dozen sawmills to talk to them about what they're currently doing with their waste, what their revenue streams look like with that, whether they've heard of biochar and could potentially be interested. Uh, we talked to a lot of biochar researchers, companies installing pyrolyzers in different places. And like ultimately, after a bunch of brainstorming and thinking about, well, how does it make sense to structure all of these ideas that are coming together? The group produced a really interesting report uh, synthesizing all this knowledge and you know, thinking about whether actually it, in what conditions it makes sense to actually do this at a sawmill. So it's an example. I think that stakeholder discussion process where you like go all out and really talk to a lot of people who are working on this right now has been really effective in a lot of the problem packs that sort of distilling where the problems are, uh, where people's heads are at this who are actually in the field right now. And then, you know, taking that knowledge and doing some interesting brainstorming with the team having fun while you're doing it, but coming up with something at the end. I like that you sort of split this between the more passive consumption learning habits and then problem packs being a different, more active approach. Because I can imagine there probably is a linear progression, right? You join Air Miners, you do the boot up, and that's where you do Carbon Removal Academy. And then you graduate and you do problem packs. Or is that even the right way to see it? That's definitely in line of how we thought about things, especially since with the boot up, people sort of figure out where their affinity is and what they want to explore more. And then after getting that breadth, the problem packs really provide a source of depth where you can sort of more actively pursue this, make connections, do some networking, but also ultimately come up with an idea that might become your next thing. But the beauty is that it's also only three weeks. So like if at the end of the three weeks you realize, ah, this wasn't for me, then you didn't sign up for some really long-term commitment. You didn't get a job that you find out you're not interested in. You just had an interesting time and you can try something new the next time. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. Maybe this is a good place to talk about your thinking on how these climate communities, which are proliferating wildly right now, there's so many of them. I just joined uh, Work on Climate the other day. I still haven't- I love Work on Climate, yeah. Yeah, I haven't really stuck my neck out in there and, and said hello yet, but I've been poking around and there's so many different things, my climate journey and there's a bunch of specialized Slack communities and there's probably a whole bunch of things I'm not even aware of. I know Climate Base is trying to do a lot of work on how you actually do this in a scalable, productive way. Um, how should we be thinking about climate communities and where their value lay? Yeah, well, for me, the main takeaway that I've started to get from running the boot up and the problem packs in similar ways is that a lot of times when maybe you're in one of these big climate communities, one of the ones with like a thousand plus people in it that are posting in specific channels and there's conversation going on. But I think Ross, actually, at one point you put it to me as feeling like a member of mass society where you're contributing and you're maybe you can post a link at sometimes, but there isn't really some close friend meeting or it's hard to find connections in that scenario. But the way we do things at the boot up, as I've sort of described, is that we create these smaller sub communities that exist within the larger structure. I think part of the beauty of that is that you sort of get the best of both worlds where we do this fun thing in the boot up where we have a random channel. And with every meeting, we have each team submit like a fun, you know, a haiku or an image or something funny to represent their team and sort of establish some sort of team pride among this group of like eight to 10 people who are meeting twice a week. But what we've seen is like, there are still interactions that are happening outside of 
the smaller group settings, you can preserve that at scale, but there still needs to be, in order for a community to be valuable, especially for me, from what I've seen, is you need to have some sort of like human interactions where you get to meet people, you build your own set of connections, you build your own set of friends. And those are the times when I've always had the best, like when I joined Air Miners, there were maybe only like 10 people last June who were regularly posting. And when I popped in and introduced myself, all of those people reached out to me and we had really good conversations, whereas it's grown a little bit now. And I don't think if I had joined now, I would have quite the same experience in terms of, you know, immediately finding the people with my similar interests who I can become friends with immediately. So I think for a climate community to be successful, it's important to have these sort of smaller subcultures within the full thing so that people can find connections amidst the whole. Hmm. I definitely think that's the case. I have posted in other Slack groups before, uh, not in a self-promotional way. It wasn't like, hey, everyone here should come check out this amazing podcast I just did. And here's why. I posted something else. I posted like things that I thought were relevant to the community at large and had a little bit of a crickets kind of reaction <laughs> to it. I was like, oh, am I doing this wrong? Or, or, or is this more of a sort of like a status uh, hierarchy game and I don't have enough status to attract any uh, emojis or what is happening <laughs> that is, I'm, I've clearly have done something wrong or maybe it's just objectively boring and no one cares about what I'm posting about. That's also possible. But being able to actually interact with people on a old school one-on-one basis, I think it's nice to like one thing I did, oh God, am I going to say this on the podcast? I'm closing this up for now because it was too much, but I just opened my calendar on Air Miners. I'm like, hey guys, I've decided that Slack is a bad use of my time for the most part. I have, I'm just too busy, but I'll gladly take meetings with anyone if they want to. And so I've just had, I don't know, dozens of random meetings. Like all of them were pretty fun and interesting. Some of them didn't have a direct call to action or something we could do as a next step. But I did feel like it was good to take the pulse of the entire carbon removal community or at least that small subset it feels like there's value there i prefer that over text there's something about text that i find really inhospitable as someone who loves reading maybe you <laughs> interpersonally it's just different yeah i mean i definitely know what you mean it definitely sometimes when you post something and you're seeing how many thumbs up you get feel like, like a popularity yeah, hunt yeah, to some keep extent. Them coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the small problem pack groups, when you post something, there's a whole interesting discussion that can often emerge because it's relevant to the, the brainstorming that's going on. And I think it's ultimately, even when there's so many fewer people that are actually there in that little private community within the, the, the larger thing, I think more interesting discussions often emerge in that setting because people are more willing to engage and more willing to put themselves out there on that smaller scale. I think that personal touch makes sense and maybe it's also god john you're so much younger so maybe this doesn't even make sense to you <laughs> the the like differences between terrestrial versus digital satellite radio do you know much about that yeah that's i think before my time <laughs> there used to be radio waves that were beamed by towers and something with electromagnetism you probably know more about this than me john but it happened And there was a tendency, I think, to rush towards the lowest common denominator within a certain genre. So at least when I started listening in probably like the 90s or the early aughts, there was like a classic rock station. There was an alternative station. There was a Kiss FM pop kind of station. But they all basically played the same things. And you could find that in basically any 
city in America, as far as I know. And then XM came along and it's like, you want Howard Stern? Here's 24 seven Howard Stern. You want Grateful Dead bootlegs? We got that. You want Outlaw Country? It's like whatever genre, it just got more and more specific. Nowadays with Spotify, it's it's right. your own <laughs> exact personal, but that was a, a gradual process of it happening in a big group. I think there's a tendency to sort of like converging among uncontroversial or, or things that are almost kind of banal in some cases, potentially, whereas in a smaller group, there's there's more of a tendency to want to dig in or it's more niched, maybe. maybe. Is that the difference between like the mass society versus the the core group or something? Yeah, I think it is partially this like, I don't know, I wouldn't want to be wrong in the My Climate Journey carbon removal channel with several hundred people there watching me be wrong. <laughs> but if I was just testing out an idea, it's much easier to do so if there's, you know, a friendly group of seven people that I've talked to 10 times before. And I can say like, oh, yeah, I'm just thinking about this. Anyone have any thoughts? Like, it just feels more comfortable, I think, and more productive, maybe for that reason. Dang, I've never thought about it in that way. But yeah, if you say something in public as a member of a company, there's this whole, is this canonical? Is this a Nori thing? Like, can't I just, is there not a space where I can uh, noodle on an idea and not have, uh, that's sort of what you're trying to get at though, right? Like you want yeah. it to be explorative and creative and you don't want someone to come screenshot and be like, well, John, last week you said this, what now? <laughs> Hypocrite. Yeah. And I feel like that's fine once you have your thoughts together, maybe. And you know, you're, maybe you're, you have a friendly group of people, you know, is in that bigger channel so that it, it's less scary to post there. But yeah, ultimately I think it's about creating the and fostering these environments where that that level of creativeness and that level of, you know, this is very, very uh, tentative. I'm just noodling. But like, here's a thought. Anybody want to take it further? Who might we talk to in order to develop this idea? Anybody have further thinking on it? Hmm. And you think that's primarily a, a feature of just the scale? You think maybe if it's a people are maybe kinder in smaller groups or something else? Yeah, scale is part of it. But I think it like, if I knew every single one of those 300 people and like we had built relationships before, then I think I'd have a different feeling. Whereas I think it's just something about context and something about feeling like that's the type of thing that belongs in this space versus in, in a bigger space. Also, it's, it's worth mentioning that for the problem packs, one major feature of it is that whenever people go to sign up, they have to click a checkbox that says they're willing to commit to 10 hours per week commitments for every week of the three weeks that it actually runs. So that's definitely like there to be a filter for people who are not just going to sit it out and wait on the sidelines while other people actually attend the meetings. Because I think as soon as those you know Slack channels start piling up with people who are less active and less motivated as the other people in the group, maybe, then it sort of drags the energy level down or the creativity level down to some extent the meetings start getting less and less attendance and then the project falls to pieces maybe. And I've seen that happen in some bigger learning group style things where, you know, everybody is welcome and then the meeting comes and there's three people there out of the hundred people in the channel or something. So fostering that right mindset where people are committed and this is a real project that you signed up to do, I think is really important to me. That's a great way to put it. I've thought a lot about that too, in particular on that episode I did with Evan Hines of Climate Base not long ago about what does our Patreon book club look like if it, you know, 
air quotes, scales. Like for instance, we had Kim Stanley Robinson come and hang out with our like 40 book club members. And uh, I could have advertised that and been like, if you want private time with this world-renowned science fiction author, pay this amount and come hang out with us. And then would we have just been crowded in with, with newcomers who don't actually care? Or would it have taken away from the experience of people who have been there month after month? Does this have to scale? Why does everything have to scale? Is that a, is that a way that tech in Silicon Valley has invaded our brains and everything needs this? How should yeah. I be thinking about this? I mean, I'm very much looking to get a lot of people to do the boot up and to do the problem pack. So that is a scaling exercise. But I think by preserving these small communities within the bigger thing by, you know, you guys, this is a cluster of friends. This is a cluster of people who care about this other topic. Like you can still scale while in maintaining that small community feel. I think the difference with the book club is that Ross Kenyon or Kim Stanley Robinson are finite resources that aren't going to go meet with like all 50 mini teams of book club members at the same time. So maybe there's some scarcity in that you know, people are signing up so that they could talk to you specifically or talk to an author specifically that's there. But I think scaling can still happen within larger communities under the condition that the small groups of friends and connections are maintained. Hmm. I started thinking about whether or not I'm a finite resource or not. <laughs> well, you have finite time. Yeah, that's that's true. But okay, well, how do you scale this? It seems difficult to have, well, for you to administer multiple of these problem pack groups, is there some point where you're like, I can't do more than five of these at a time or what happens? Yeah. Well, the way I'm thinking about it right now is like, like I said, in February, I was the team leader for all of the problem packs. Found it hard. Yeah. Given that it's a 10 hour per week commitment for every problem pack and I was doing four of them, that was intense, but this one, we're running six, so slowly moving up, but I'm not actually participating in any of the problem packs. Instead, I had people on the sign-up form rank how interested they were in being a team leader on a scale from one to five, and the people who are on the higher end of the spectrum ended up being sort of taking on the roles that I did during the February round by you know setting up the meetings and facilitating brainstorming and driving towards that end deliverable. But I've been meeting a lot with those team leaders in order to to help them learn the lessons that I learned the first time and be effective at whatever it means to run a problem pack. So at sort of one level up, I can I can sort of have team leaders who run those packs. But then the next question is like, is there someone who can take over my role as person who helps the team leaders figure out what they're doing when they start running the problem packs and have sort of team leader managers for maybe a particular topic. So somebody who's really interested in regenerative agriculture wants to be sort of a little bit a part of several regenerative agriculture packs without having to commit 10 hours per week per any one of them. So they can help the team leaders and be in those Slack groups, but maybe not be full participants and still be, you know, managing on the sidelines. So the question becomes, you know, what are all those topics that people can come into and how do you create this chain of people, uh, people being leaders at different areas, but definitely still in flux and I have a ways to go in terms of building that out. Why do this? Is it some sort of, you want to see more people in carbon removal? And for you personally, what are you getting out of it? 
That sounded yeah. very accusative. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you better have yeah. a good answer. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of why I do this, like on a climate perspective, I think there's like, you go into work on climate or my climate journey and just every day there's an influx of people who, like I said, are like, where, where do I get started? How do I pursue this topic? I'm new to the space. I want to, I want to get going on direct air capture, but don't know where to start. So like, you know, this whole time with Carbon Removal Academy and the boot up and problem packs, it's always been like, how do you provide more structured opportunities to get involved? A lot of times when I was talking to people about this topic at the beginning, they were telling me that like, oh, we need to find more ways to connect people with jobs that are relevant to them. But what ultimately popped out the other side of that discussion is like, there aren't that many structured jobs out there for people to sign up for. And the ones that exist are not looking for the person who knows the most about, you know, regenerative agriculture, but they're looking for the best software engineer to come build their product or something. So it's their skill set that matters more than the knowledge about the topic often. So for me, it's like, okay, so if there aren't that many structured opportunities that exist to plug into the climate world, especially for people who don't want to be founders, then how can we create more structured opportunities that maybe aren't jobs, but are interesting ways to, you know, make a dent, do that creative brainstorming and come up with what your next path is, find that affinity. So, you know, what you want to go apply your skill set to, but you know, again, on a short-term basis. So it's not like you have to go through the grueling job hunt process first only to find out that they weren't impressed by your software engineering skills yet, maybe. That's a question we faced hiring at Nori a fair amount too, where what is easier to teach software engineering or <laughs> sort of enough about agriculture, right? I could envision a world though, where, you know, you would want to optimize probably for the person who's a better software engineer, because they're going to be the ones building your product, but that companies like Nori would send people through either a boot up or maybe problem packs that send them deep into the particular problems that Nori is working on. And then all of a sudden they've got their, their brain full of ideas about how to shape their regenerative ag space with that combined with that software engineering skill set that they came in with. No, that's absolutely right. There's also something really valuable about people being, because we have hired people who have found us through the podcast. We have either have interns or projects that have come through in that way. And that's also really valuable, having people love what they do and are passionate about it. Most of the people that I think we've hired, they came through a climate tech sort of journey of their own where they're like, I care about climate change. Like, where do I even look? What do I do? I think that part of it is really important. But if we were... So, sending people through boot up, which we have like a couple of Nori knots have been through at this point, And I'm sure we'll continue using this valuable resource. And if you're listening and you want to get involved, you should join air miners and go through boot-up.airminers.org. That's where you could sign up. There you go. But I think having that uh, level of interest and passion is really important. But if they weren't also good at their core duties, I think we'd have a hard time figuring out a role for them. Right, which is why for the way I've, I've begun to think about this is steering people who have skill sets to help figure out where their climate affinity is. I think that's one of the, the value adds because, you know, if I'm a really, really talented software engineer who wants to go work on climate change, there's tons of problems I could go work on. And like the right decision for them probably isn't to just go find all the software engineering jobs and apply and apply and apply. It's like, okay, well, do I actually you know, am I intrinsically more interested in the cement world or in the regenerative ag world or in the 
transportation world or something. And as you start to explore and figure out where your affinity actually is, that will inform for that person where they want to apply their skill set and which companies they want to go work for or where they want to spend their time. What are you excited about in the next couple of years with carbon removal? Yeah, sure. Well, I actually spend time... One of my other smaller projects that I've been building is Carbon Visions, which is a Slack, another Slack community for college students who are interested in the space. And, you know, we haven't done very much active outreach to students at this point, but it's just, you know, people seem to find us one way or another who are interested in the space. And we have, you know, regular discussions about papers and talk about new ideas. But I think, I don't know, maybe it's just being a young person and seeing a lot of other young people getting into the climate world, but it's just really inspiring as like a new wave of people comes in to help meet climate deadlines and make the carbon removal space and the climate space more broadly, bigger and better. I think that's super exciting too. As much as we, we slash mostly me, we're a little less comfortable in these bigger mass society kind of spaces. It is nice that I don't know many of the people in air miners or other places at this point, And it keeps growing like, Oh, we need this so badly. If it's, if everyone can fit in a single room, it's not going to do anything of import probably. Well, I feel that's, I feel that way sometimes about the carbon removal, like academic ecosystem, because like when you look at some of the papers, most of the papers written about carbon removal, they often have like the same maybe 15 authors that you could you could pick out. And, you know, a lot of those authors were also part of the CDR primer. And like, it's great to have a tight knit academic community. But like between the startup side and the academic world and the NGO space, like I would love to start seeing a lot of new faces as I know a lot of people are starting to get PhDs in carbon removal or climate related fields. And the number of voices talking about the space continues to increase. Do you have a strong opinion on, I see it go back and forth, almost like the tide of the ecological carbon removal only or only industrial or geological sequestration. It goes back and forth. I see someone credible on on every side of that seemingly every week. So how should someone think about that debate? I don't know. I think it's kind of useless sometimes because like there are posts sometimes that talk about like why this form of carbon removal or carbon removal, the field as a whole is overrated or people shouldn't be talking about it, or we need to focus on other things. It can be frustrating. And, you know, on a policy level, maybe there is a need to prioritize based on like where that federal budget goes. And that's a conversation that's worth having. But I don't know if I really like when people sort of loudly scream into the public discourse that what a whole group of people is working on and trying hard to to build out you know for climate change is invaluable or a waste of time just because there's a lot of exploration and a lot of innovation that still needs to happen and calling people out for doing good work doesn't seem to be very productive often well, yeah i feel pretty similarly and one of the things i really like about all of your work and all of these programs that you've been developing is that I might be reading too much into this and correct me if I am, but there's a, a sense of genuine curiosity and not having a final answer already built into the curricula that is refreshing because there are many places you can go that will be all too happy to tell you the exact right answer. And it doesn't seem like you have that, John. And I think that's actually a good thing. 
Yeah, well, that, some of those debates are even built into the the Carbon Removal Academy curriculum itself, like in the Regenerative Agriculture module. I don't know if you remember this, but back in, I think, June 2020, World Resources Institute put out a blog post that said soil carbon sequestration is not nearly as effective at mitigating climate as people think it is. And then a bunch of the like Keith Houston and uh, a bunch of other big soil scientists put out a letter of response sort of hammering home their argument for why it actually is valuable and has merit. So both of those, the blog post and the response are in the curriculum so that people can sort of see this back and forth and appreciate that a lot of these things are open for debate and have discourse and have a lot of nuance uh, more than any one side of an argument would like you to think there is. So that's definitely a value for sure. I might have said this on a previous show, forgive me if you've heard this one, but I think the phrase teach the controversy, that was sort of ruined by the intelligent design and scopes trial kind of like 20th century fallout. But I like that a lot. I, my undergraduate degrees in history and a lot of the, the ways history is practiced in uh, universities tends to be, you'll be like this school of, of historiography approaches the problem this way. And this other school of thought approaches it this other way. And you're like, God, there's good insights from all these different angles. I don't know how to make sense of them all at the same time, but I usually think of it as approaching a problem kaleidoscopically. And if you can switch between lenses, that usually makes you a better thinker, in my humble opinion. And I think the more people are able to do that, I think it would help us break out of some of these really intense fights that we have sometimes. It also, though, makes me a little more charitable than I should be or less willing to commit to a position firmly, which also makes me really annoying to debate against because I'm like, I don't know. This is an interesting question. I was asked to give a presentation recently and I was like, I don't know. I'm like kind of okay at asking questions. I don't know that I have any definitive answers to give you. <laughs> Nori, the one way to reverse climate change. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know like, if I can give that presentation in good faith. Sorry. Got an idea. This might like. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying, dang it. But yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think being intellectually humble is really important especially when we're talking about topics as important and often as heated as climate change, <laughs> maintaining that attitude serves you well, I think. Yeah, I think so. It probably at least keeps it interesting for, for me and I'm sure for you too, that sort of like the more you think about these things or the more you look at them, the more angles you discover. It keeps totally. you coming back for more. You could have been doing stand-up. You could have been doing, what else was in that, that hat? I got to know. What else was in there? Uh, there's a lot of music guitar playing. Uh, there was a whole section of just random ones. So actually the way the way that I found carbon removal specifically and actually dove into the space was that the week after Explore the Climate Tech startup ecosystem, there was read five Shakespeare plays. But after that, there was complete a one-week internship. So I was, I was trying to find people to reach out to for this one-week internship. And during that climate tech exploration week, I found Tito's YouTube channel as he talked about the carbon removal space. So I sent him a quick email saying, hey, I'm happy to do uh, stuff for air miners, maybe produce a YouTube video, who knows? But he responded and we set up a call and that's how I fell into the carbon removal world. Good old Tito. Yeah, that's that's a great story. I'm really happy that you found your way in in such a strange way. A one-week internship, that's just, it's like a stodge in a restaurant or something. It was like <laughs> barely even there. That's creative though. Yeah, okay, books, Shakespeare. 
you're one of the people that whenever we hang out, we always end up talking about books and they're always the books that you get to be like, ah, yes. And I was reading Moby Dick the other day <laughs> and you get to pat yourself on the back a little bit, but I think those books are important. I like reading them. I think books that are still being read either stand the test of time for quality reasons or are at least part of the, our common cultural mapping of the universe and sort of make sense to read at least. Why are books cool? Why are books cool? It's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, but I think that is true that like reading a funny scene from Moby Dick or my favorite book uh, is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's a great one. And I used to sort of snobbily tell people after I read that, that like all of life and every human emotion can be found within this book. And that was my pitch. But, um, uh, you know, for me, <laughs> I try not to be, be like that anymore. But still, it's like, I think there's, I think there's something that, you know, you can find ways to tie things in your own life or, or laugh about these particular, <laughs> particular characters or connect them with the way that you view other people that really helps me and that I get a lot of enjoyment from. I think that's, that's pretty close to it. Solving this, if you grew up in Europe or America, especially, it's probably true in other places too, but there just are sort of stock images and idioms that you can pull off the shelf and people kind of like, oh yeah, I recognize that scene. Yeah, but I like for me, it's even that cultural context is important, I think. But even funnier for me, like in 100 Years of Solitude, there's like all of these one-off references that like never come back. Like I think at one point, one character mentions like, and that was the biggest gathering of the community since Big Mama's Funeral Carnival. And it's like, what? We never get any reference to that. But sometimes like that, that one line will stick in my head and come up as a frame with which I view some other situation that I find myself in. He was just thinking of uh, how to set up the prequels. That's where all the real money is made. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, that's interesting. I, I sort of wouldn't have pegged you as a magical realism appreciator. I just started reading Midnight's Children for the first time. Uh, that Salman Rushdie? Salman Rushdie. I am utterly blown away. Oh. Uh, it is. They just pack so much in there. Like every sentence is just crafted in such a way that it feels like it captures some essence of an idea and you know some people like magical realism for the magical elements but i feel like for me that's sort of an aside to the the atmosphere that they put you in and how dense and how much they get into a single chapter that just flows from one mini story to the next and each one is like its own interesting window into a life or i don't know i like it a lot you're looking around. Are you looking for a book? <laughs> no, I was just looking at my shelf. <laughs> so yes, you were you were reading the Bible too, right? How's that going? <laughs> well, you know, the the interest there spun from one of my favorite podcasts, which is called Literature and History. This is by a guy named Doug Metzger, who has undergone an super and is continuing a super intense project of creating these two-hour mega episodes that sort of march through anglophone literature starting with like the epic of gilgamesh and mesopotamia and i think <laughs> anticipating moving towards the 21st century but there was a whole series on the bible that you know i still haven't totally sunk my teeth into but it's a project that i'm looking forward to in which he has 10 episodes on the old testament and a full series on the the new testament and i think by now that podcast is like 1.6 million words written total for it so it's crazy projects <laughs> but 
yeah, looking forward to that one too. That's neat. You've, you've pitched this show to me so many times and I've, it's so good. It's, <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't need more reasons to have headphones in, but yeah. For me, it matches my, uh, aesthetic of trying to build some element of whimsy and fun into the learning process because at the end of every episode he has a comedy song that reflects on or makes fun of some of the material from the previous episode so as someone who appreciates the art of the comedy song and someone who initially came to to tito pitching him on my one week internship saying that i can make an air miners theme song a lot of it a lot of that sort of style and the material itself as well really goes goes well with my personality you think you can go toe-to-toe with baba brinkman for his air miners <laughs> rap i don't know i'm <laughs> grant faber produced a song recently too that uh is pretty good so fighting against some uh, some high talent here but we'll see is there any connection in your head beyond our personal proclivities for literature and art and the humanities and carbon removal Do you think so? Or are we just looking for ways to connect them? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is going to sound cliche, but I think when I read these books, I often think about carbon removal because the things that I do in my day to day, like boot up and problem pack work sort of layer themselves on top of the happenings in the book. And I feel like, wow, yeah, that makes sense. This character also was thinking about a problem of scaling up like we're talking about or thinking about running up against the limits of some ecosystem maybe so even if it's like it's sometimes hard to say that like you know we can use the lessons taught to us by the brothers karamazov to solve climate change because there's nothing that direct i find that the work that i do to build out carbon removal and problem packs and boot up and whatever it is is often in my mind in my own mental web very interlayered with the books that i read and you know for me, that enhances my experience, gives me new ideas, and helps me build out solutions that are better, I think. Yeah, I'm having a hard time seeing that in Dostoevsky. Yeah, <laughs> you be like, Raskolnikov and solar radiation management. <laughs> like, in analysis by John Sanchez. Yeah, that'd be... That right. would, that'll be my senior thesis in college. <laughs> yeah, you're like... You're like, okay, not everything is connected. Sometimes a thing is just a thing. Um, Yeah, but, you know, a lot of dealing with climate is interacting with real people and convincing people to behave in a certain way and, you know, observing what it will take to get people to appreciate something or to commit to some to commit to some process and like the human insights that you can get from reading these books are definitely real and Dostoevsky I read Brothers Karamazov earlier in my gap year which is why I'm thinking about him but like I think when you look at how like Alyosha or Ivan or some of these characters behaves on a regular basis it sort of helps me map on to the other people that I'm interacting with and Again, I think it's just a frame that then becomes a way of conceptualizing those interactions. I have that less from Dostoevsky personally, but the one that I do think about probably more than any other is Don Quixote. You ever read that one? I haven't. It's on my list for eventually getting there. But uh, yeah, I've heard good things. I really like the Edith Grossman translation too. And she did a bunch of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's and Mario Vargas Llosa's uh, translations. But Don Quixote is so funny because the musical Man of La Mancha portrays him as being this noble man out of step with a, <laughs> with a corrupt world. 
but in the book, he's he's like dangerous. Like like if Don Quixote comes your way in the book, it's not like a cute old man. It's like, oh God, there's a crazy guy with a lance and he's trying to stab me <laughs> just because I'm, I'm hurting my sheep and he thinks it's an invading Moorish army. There's a bunch of stuff like that. that uh, yeah. Well, people running at windmills sometimes. <laughs> trying to. Yeah, that's the only thing. Um, but I like the idea of, for instance, there's a there's a um, bookstore I went to in Guatemala City once upon a time, and it was named after Don Quixote, and it was a sort of like leftist bookstore. I don't know that you want to link your politics to this guy because in, <laughs> in the book, he's a guy who constantly misinterprets the world and then acts upon it and makes it worse. So is that that's not clearly not how you see your politics? Maybe he isn't just like a noble a noble guy in a corrupt world, but um, yeah, I can see that like with the Procrustean bed, you know that famous parable from greek mythology it's like the uh, like like a like a cyclops or a giant and if you stay with him he has a bed that he'll either stretch your limbs to match or he'll cut off your limbs nasim taleb loves this story as being a case of ideology blinding people he's like whatever though well yeah well for me like it's one thing to like have somebody tell you that ideology blinds people right like i feel like most people sort of have some sense of that to some degree but then to see it unfold in those different ways and to hear what might be like a rote lesson that like could be some maxim that some Silicon Valley guru might present to you. Like that's one thing, but then it's another thing to like witness the events of the novel unfold and like have all of the context and, you know, have that lesson framed in a way where for me, at least it hits home much harder. And like, rather than thinking about the ideology blinding, I have a whole narrative in my head that, becomes a map for that particular maxim yeah i think that's true there's other cases of that where yeah ideology blinds you is sort of something like maybe like a 18 year old with a bob marley poster over their dorm couch might say but if you read something like a confederacy of dunces which have you have you read that oh one yeah i love it okay so <laughs> in, well in eighth grade i read that for a book report and oh no. for the book report i brought there's a scene in Confederacy of Dunces where uh, Ignatius J. Riley is becomes a hot dog cart manager that he's wheeling around. <laughs> so for my book report, I brought in a prop, which was a set of boxes stacked on top of a skateboard that was my hot dog cart. <laughs> and I used it as a visual uh, prop, I guess, for, <laughs> for presenting my, uh, my take on the book. Most precocious thing I've ever heard, John. <laughs> I can't believe you're able to pull that off. Ignatius is a great example of this, right? Like he's always talking about Boethius and the wheel of fortune and right. the corrupt modern world. And, and he's just like, uh, lives with his mom and is a slob. And he's, he's like always telling people chaos. that they're completely lacking in theology and geometry, <laughs> which is perfect. He's like extremely delusional and like lives in this made up world. And well, yeah, you could picture some of like the hardcore, nature-based CDR people yelling at the technology CDR people that they're all lacking in theology and geometry. God. Yeah, there's there's maybe maybe you can apply it there if you'd like. But 
Yeah, you don't ever want to be that guy. And I no, think, you really don't. Which is, I saw a great article in the New Yorker recently about how, um, like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho and Ignatius J. Riley are oftentimes found as protagonists that young men in particular look up to. I was like, these people are. Th- this is a satire. You're not supposed to like these people. They're clearly the bad guys. Don Quixote is the bad guy of Don Quixote. Achilles is the bad guy, or like one of the bad guys of the Iliad. You're not supposed to. Just go with it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could just goof around talking about books forever. Maybe one of the final things we should start wrapping up on though, is your love of, of memes. What is happening in the world of, of carbon removal memory? Yeah. It's so funny in my newsletter, which everyone listening should sign up for, especially if you want to hear about uh, the next problem packs as they get released. Uh, the bottom of every issue comes uh, stocked with a, the latest and greatest in the carbon removal meme space. So I definitely feel very plugged into the zeitgeist of the memes that are going around. But yeah, it's exciting. I, I like I like to see people thinking about carbon removal in a way that doesn't take itself so seriously all the time and where people are happy to just goof around and have a connection on that level where you know there's more levity more laughs and yeah i'm, I'm a big fan of of uh of the work that, that's being done in that very dignified area yeah dignified memory um, dignified memory i'm all for it yeah. Well, John, if someone wants to follow your work and get involved in any of this, where should they go? Yeah, totally. Well, Problem Packs is beginning to be built out and I'm working on a website for it. That'll be more official than what exists now. But uh, definitely subscribe to the Substack where I post most announcements at carbontravels.substack.com. Uh, you can also check out carbonremovalacademy.com to see all those resources. And like we said before, bootup.airminers.org is where you could sign up for that. But also would love to talk to people about all of these things. If you want to get involved with any of these things or have ideas about how to make them better. Um, I'm on airminers. I'm on most of those climate communities. So feel free to DM me. I would love to chat. Great. Links to all those things are in the show notes. And thanks so much for being here, John. Yeah. Thanks, Ross. This was fun. Fun for me too. Getting to gab about books. That's always a pleasure. And if you like also gabbing about books, you should join the Patreon for Norris. Um, We have a book club, which is fun. John's in it. You can come and hang out and talk to John about books sometimes. I don't know if you mind me saying that, John, but it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. We have authors come out and chat with us sometimes. And uh, we have a really nice community of people talking about climate books and things adjacent. And if you like what we're doing here, please rate and review our show in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference, helps us get this content out to more people. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.